Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. And it's that last point that we'll be hitting a lot in this episode. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 122 for the second half of December 2014. The topic I'm going to talk about today is a few conspiracies surrounding the Rosetta mission and Comet 67P Shuryumov Gerasmienko, or Comet 67P for my own sanity and your listening ease. And this is a listener-requested episode. The Rosetta mission follows a long line of missions to comets, but it is the first to do so in nearly a decade. It's the first to orbit, and the first to attempt to land a craft on the surface. It is also the first in the age of social media, and the Rosetta outreach team has done an amazing job at releasing information and keeping interest in the mission and target. As I blogged about in my second contribution to the JREF Swift blog and reposted on my own, releasing information to the public has both good and bad points, and by information I mean images, where the latter primarily involves pseudoscientists using the early release and out-of-context information and images to advance their own pet ideas. In this episode, I'm going to address three different conspiracies related to the Rosetta mission, or possibly two or possibly four depending on how you actually keep score. The first broad claim that I want to address is that this particular comet was targeted because it was special, because NASA knew that it was artificial. Being a European Space Agency, or ESA, mission with no NASA participation, I'm not entirely sure why the secret space folks at NASA would have told ESA, but that's beside the point. So far as I can tell, this particular claim originated in the venerable bastion of journalism, UFO Sightings Daily. They posted an alleged email from an alleged person on allegedly September 29th, 2014, that allegedly stated, or actually did state because I transcribed it, in part, quote, I cannot disclose my name or my rank within the ESA, or European Space Agency, or any other distinguishable information about myself that could jeopardize my safety down the road. However, I have written this email, which I have sent to you along with certain illegally obtained photographs in question, because of the fact that there are numerous things going on in the world right now, particularly within the realm of reconnaissance missions to explore space and the objects therein, and there are lies being told, and more to the point, blatant cover-ups that are being pressed without consequence against the public. And just a note for me here, that was all one sentence. Okay, moving on. Um, and in this case, with regards to the Rosetta spacecraft and its publicly touted mission to investigate Comet 67P slash, and then the name that I'm not going to pronounce, do not think for one moment that a space agency would suddenly decide to spend billions of dollars to build and send a spacecraft on a 12-year journey to simply take some close-up images of a randomly picked out comet floating through space. I hope that your viewers and connections, if not your viewers themselves, are not as naive as the government hopes you are. There is always a reason for money like this to be spent on such a mission, and that reason, I can assure you, was not to take picture of a rogue space rock. End quote. Alright, I have to stop here because there are several issues to bring up. One that's pretty damning is that 67P was not the original target. 
Rather, it was Comet 46P Wirtanen, or possibly Wirtanen, um, it's still a more pronounceable name, to be encountered in 2011, three years ago. Unfortunately, the planned launch on January 12, 2003 failed, or was delayed because of issues in December, and it launched a year later, on February 26, 2004. The entire mission had to be replanned with new rendezvous targets en route and a new final destination. The only way that one can claim that 67P was the original target is to claim that the original failure was planned by those in charge, knowing that the only alternative with a new launch window would have been 67P. Now, I'm not saying that no conspiracy theorist has claimed this. In fact, Richard C. Hoagland has made this exact type of claim about Apollo missions in the past. But... Unless you sink incredibly deep into the realm of conspiracy, 67P was not even the original target. Another problem with the claim is that it was a 10-year journey, not 12 years. Minor, but another error. The cost is actually correct, with the total cost being about 1.3 billion euros, or about 1.8 billion US dollars. I wouldn't necessarily say that's, quote, billions with a plural of dollars, but same diff as the expression goes. However, the fact that this person uses dollars, and the fact that they got the timescale wrong, and the fact that they didn't apparently know that 67P was not the original target, also the clarification that the attached images were illegally obtained, I mean, really, who, who actually says that, the poor grammar as well, and the capitalization of ESA when most Europeans only have the first letter capitalized in pronounceable acronyms, like whenever I read the BBC, NASA is capital N and then lowercase ASA, all of those combined lead me to think that this email is clearly fake and not from someone at ESA, besides the crazy content, of course. The email, however, went on, quote, The images attached to this email are two of the original images captured by the Rosetta spacecraft on its approach to the comet 67P. By saying that they are original, I should clarify this has meant that they are undoctored versions of the images already shown publicly or soon to be released publicly. These images depict the true nature of the mission and the real reason the space agencies across the world made it a priority to venture out and partake in a military reconnaissance mission around this object. Comet 67P is not a comet. Some 20 years ago, the NASA Space Agency, which was actually redundant, uh, began detecting radio bursts from an unknown origin out in space. It would late be known that these bursts had likely come from the direction of the now-named Comet 67P. Once the technology progressed, it was confirmed that not only were these signals coming directly from the comet itself, but that the comet had seemed to change trajectory as well, which, to any scientist, is an obvious impossibility for any rock confined to the physics of space. End quote. Pausing here again, there are two more things to be discussed. One, or the first one, that I left out in the last section is the statement that comets are rocks. As I discussed ad nauseum two episodes ago, comets are not rocks. They are dirty snowballs, primarily composed of ices mixed with rocks. Second is the claim that 67P changed course. 
perhaps needless to say, uh, though I did search, I could find no evidence to back up this statement. I was able to find that in 1959, which is actually before the comet was discovered, a close encounter with Jupiter changed its orbit a bit, but that was 1959, not 1994, 20 years ago from now. I also found evidence that the rotation period, its day, changed from about 12.76 hours to 12.4 hours relatively recently, but that is easily explained by uneven outgassing or sublimation in one part acting to slightly alter the spin. For the conspiracy-minded, I can think of only one way to say that this really did happen, that it did, but that the powers that be have covered it up. Somehow. The problem with this thinking is that while it's true that amateur and even most professional astronomers do not tend to meticulously chart the positions of comets, this one was discovered in 1969. It orbits the Sun every 6.44 years, and thus it has made many orbits around the Sun since its discovery. And it has been observed by people who know where it should be many, many times over the past 45 years. If its trajectory had altered even just a little bit, people would have noticed, and it would have been recorded, simply because it would no longer be where it had been predicted to be. It's easy to make a simple claim that something like this happens, like a comet changing its course a little bit, but it's quite another to find some way to cover it up. These are not difficult observations to make, and just a few months after a comet would have allegedly changed course, the position would be quite different from where it should have been, and this would have been reported, and I'd love to find evidence of it. After this, the email does continue. Quote, it was at this time that the NASA Space Agency, again, which is redundant, decided to plan out a mission to send a military-backed reconnaissance mission to the object in hopes of discovering its true nature. Because of its nature and secrecy, the American Space Agency made a deal with European government insiders to publicly tout the mission as a search to simply get a close-up of one of the millions of comets flying through space. It was the perfect cover and it allowed the governments to go about getting the mission off the ground without the need to hide its launch. The images attached are undoctored and depict the true inner workings of Comet 67P, which, as it turns out, is something completely different from a comet, and is only being disguised as such. As for who is disguising it and why, I cannot answer. All I can tell you is that whatever this thing is, it does show signs on its outside of machine-like parts and unnatural terrain. I trust that you will do your best to pass these images on to the proper sources and ask that you simply have patience for my next reply. Whatever this object is, it did not ask to be found or scrutinized, and it appears for good reason. End quote. Phew, okay. So the grammar guy in me was absolutely horrified having to transcribe and type out all of those IT apostrophe S's in that. It is from someone who never learned their homophones and someone who uses commas whenever they take a breath, which is actually in the English language, making me think that this was not someone who is simply not a native speaker, because the cadence of the pauses and the commas is from someone who has been speaking English as a native. Besides that, the website, UFO Sightings Daily, did not present the two allegedly undoctored images that had allegedly been sent. It did provide one image with a big circle in the middle with the question, 
UFO sending radio transmissions, or is it a base inside Comet 67P? False dichotomy right there. But the area that circled shows a small bright splotch, which, to me, looks exactly like your basic cosmic ray bright spot. Now, I know that anyone listening to this who's remotely conspiracy-minded is going to groan or moan or emit an otherwise guttural noise of disgust. After all, cosmic rays seem to be the go-to thing for dismissing some of these bright anomalies and images. Unfortunately, while it's unsatisfying, the problem for the anomaly hunters is that this is a true, actual, factual, happens-all-the-time phenomenon. Cosmic rays are high-energy particles that can hit the detector, and because of the energy imparted, they make a bright splotch at that pixel. It's like a lot of light suddenly got put in that pixel on the detector. You can get cosmic ray splashes also, which set off nearby pixels. You can get blooming, which is where the cosmic ray had so much energy that the light bleeds into nearby pixels, and you can get cosmic rays coming in at an angle to hit a few pixels all in a line. Speaking from my position of authority as a guy who works with spacecraft imagery in my research all the time, as in pretty much every day, cosmic rays are in most images that I use unless they have been specifically removed or attempted to be removed by various computer algorithms. Lately, my non-Pluto planning work has focused on Saturn's moons and Mercury, using images from the Messenger and Cassini cameras, and I see numerous cosmic rays in practically every single image that I use. What do I do with them? Well, I ignore them, because I know what they look like, and I know that they're just a random splattering anomaly that is not an actual data point that I can use, and so I ignore them. Scientists in general ignore them, except for people who study cosmic rays, and we ignore them because we know what they look like, and we know that they aren't the real data that we're after. It's also why we tend not to use imagery at the pixel level, but we look for features that are many pixels across to make sure, or to try to make sure, that it's something that's real. Anomalists frequently do the exact opposite, and when a single bright pixel shows up right where they think something interesting is going to go on, it's the alien thing, or it's no longer a basic, simple cosmic ray. Maybe it's a spotlight from an alien city. Along these lines, while I'm talking about images, I also want to address the claim made by a commenter on the UFO Sightings Daily website. An anonymous commenter gave the URL of an image and stated, quote, This image shows that have been edited by Microsoft ICE v1.4.4.0, which is Microsoft Image Composite Editor, is an advanced panoramic image stitcher, which is an image editor software. Please provide the raw, untouched image for further analysis. Then we can start extrapolating from there. Currently, what can be extrapolated based on this is, and then various characters. If in doubt, open with Notepad++ the image and check the first lines for the software that was used for the last save. Smiley face. Enjoy. End quote. And for those who are reading what I speaketh, all of the typos are in the original. The reason that I'm going to address this seemingly small, nonsensical claim in one comment on one fringe site is that the claim is not unique to Rosetta Images, and this episode would be rather short if I skipped it. I have seen this claim applied to images from practically every spacecraft we've sent out, and I haven't addressed it yet in the podcast, Uh, so the generic form is, 
If you look at the metadata for the image, it says that it was created or modified in insert image processing software name, and therefore that is proof positive that the image has been faked. The claim itself may seem to make sense on its face. After all, why should a photo from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter of an Apollo landing site have been modified in Photoshop? Isn't that what the metadata means? The answer is no. So moving on to the next claim, okay, well, I suppose that we can go into a little bit more detail here. Whenever you take a photograph with a camera, or whenever you save an image in image processing software, metadata is almost always written out. This is a string of information that, for any software that reads metadata, or any person reading the software that reads the metadata, tells the software or that person who's looking at it various bits of information. And by bits, I mean little pieces, tidbits, not bits as in computer bit. Uh, for example, when I take a photograph with my camera and then look at the metadata, the metadata tells me the camera type, the camera model, the firmware version, the shutter speed, the f-stop, the ISO, any mode I had the camera on, any color adjustment, and lots of other information. And if I had a new model, it would have the GPS coordinates as well. If you've ever geotagged a photo, that's usually written out to the metadata as GPS coordinates. Many computer-based photo storage solutions, such as Apple's iPhoto will write metadata when you tag images with keywords or faces. So I have a bunch of photos that are now tagged with Orion Constellation because I took pictures of the Orion Constellation and I tagged them in iPhoto. It's not a bad thing. And for a guy like me who likes to document stuff like crazy and likes this kind of documentation, it's a good way to keep track of things right inside of the image file itself. That way you don't have to send the image file as well as a text file telling you what's going on. The same thing happens with most photo software. After all, it, too, wants to let anyone looking at the metadata know that that software had some role in the image that you're looking at. That role could be as simple as saving a photo as a different file format. For example, I've taken PNG files written out by graphing software that I use, I've taken them into Photoshop, and I've saved as a TIFF for a slightly smaller but still a lossless file. I did absolutely no manipulation in Photoshop. I went from one lossless format to another, but Photoshop is still going to attach a tag to the metadata saying that I have done something to that image in Photoshop version whatever I'm using. Similarly, I have taken spacecraft images and not liking the command line tools that many in the field use to mosaic them together, I'll do it in Photoshop. That means taking perfectly fine, normal images placing them carefully relative to each other, maybe needing to change the scale or rotation of one by a tiny fraction of a percent, and then saving the final mosaic. I did this, for example, with the Cydonia mosaic in the first movie that I came out with in May of this year. And yes, more are coming. In fact, I have five scripts that I'm writing in tandem, although I have learned my lesson that I'm not giving estimated release dates. Or release dates. There we go. Uh, that Cydonia mosaic will therefore be tagged as having been created or modified in Adobe Photoshop, even though it was from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter of the Context Camera, all processed with ISIS, which is not a terrorist group, but it's the image software that the United States Geological Survey makes to process these images. But because I did that last step in Photoshop, it's going to say that this was made in Photoshop. That doesn't mean I faked it. That doesn't mean that I manipulated it beyond just stitching the panorama together. That doesn't mean I brushed over some alien who's waving at me or some pyramid. All it means is that Photoshop 
happened to be the last piece of software that saved the image. So too is the case here. I've covered image processing and photography with spacecraft in detail in earlier episodes, so I'm just going to gloss over this and basically say that after all of the images from Rosetta had basic corrections applied, like correcting for biases in the detector or a mode of dust on the lens, someone had to save it in some way and put it online. If it were me, and I've been doing this now for 17 years, I would have taken it into Photoshop, maybe rotated or resized it, possibly adjusted the contrast so you could see a bit more, because remember, this was for a public outreach image, and then saved as a lossy JPEG and uploaded it to the website. Lossy JPEG so that pretty much any web browser can read it, and anyone who has even a slow internet connection can still download it. It's incredibly benign. But suddenly, because it says it was modified in Photoshop, it becomes a conspiracy. And it takes just a few seconds to make that claim that it's a conspiracy and to sow that doubting question. Okay, why should it have been modified in Photoshop? That doesn't make sense. I've now planted a seed of doubt in your mind. But I've now had to spend over five minutes explaining why it's not a conspiracy and why it doesn't mean that the image was faked. Before I move off of the comet being targeted for various nefarious or secret missions, no discussion of images and specialness would be complete without at least mentioning that Richard C. Hoagland claimed that there are skyscrapers on the comet. Now, to be fair, he did this before Rosetta went into orbit, and since then he hasn't repeated the claim, and if I'm mistaken here, I'm sure that Expat will correct me for next episode. But this is par for the course. It's almost required now that for any small body, be it asteroid or comet, that attracts any attention by us Earthlings, or the media, Richard Hoagland will claim that it is a spaceship or that it has been artificially done something to it, uh, usually in the form of buildings, uh, potentially apartment complexes. As for debunking this, I'm not going to bother. It's ridiculous on its face, as are most claims by Richard, but this one simply has no basis in any observational data, so there's nowhere to even start with debunking it. The onus is on him to provide any evidence for his actual claim. The final claim I'm going to address stems from an unfortunate effort by the Rosetta Outreach team, who entitled a blog post on November 11th of 2014, quote, The Singing Comet. End quote. The post stated, in part, quote, Rosetta's Plasma Consortium, or RPC, has uncovered a mysterious song that Comet 67P Shrimov Jarasmi—I already said I wasn't going to pronounce it again—is singing into space. One observation has taken the RPC scientists somewhat by surprise. The comet seems to be emitting a song in the form of oscillations in the magnetic field in the comet's environment. It is being sung at 40 to 50 millihertz, far below human hearing, which typically picks up sound between 20 hertz and 20 kilohertz. To make the music audible to the human ear, the frequencies have been increased by about 10,000. The music was heard clearly by the magnetometer experiment, RPC slash mag, for the first time in August when Rosetta drew within 100 kilometers of 67p CG. The scientists think it must be produced in some way by the activity of the comet as it releases neutral particles in space where they become electrically charged due to a process called ionization. But the precise physical mechanism behind the oscillations remains a mystery. End quote. 
From a public outreach standpoint, I can fully appreciate this effort, including the sonification of the data by German composer Manuel Senft. From a guy who practices skepticism in his free time, I cringed. That's because this set the conspiracy sites ablaze, claiming that the comet is literally singing, even though there's no sound in space, and it's sending a message to humans that it's communicating with us in some way, that it's trying to raise our consciousness through angelic song, etc., etc., etc. Even on a weekly radio show that I now do, the ATS Live in conjunction with Above Top Secret, on Sunday, or not Sunday, Saturday nights, US time, where I'm the kind of token skeptic, when we talked about this story, one of the panelists, well, she went there and posited that this was aliens trying to communicate with us. This is where you have to follow the rules of skepticism to remind yourself what's really going on. First, The press release specifically stated that this was the plasma instrument that detected oscillations in the 40 to 50 millihertz, or actually the plasma group of experiments, it was the magnetometer. That's about 500 times slower in frequency, or lower than human hearing. Additionally, the quote-unquote song is taking that oscillation and increasing the frequency by over a factor of 10,000 so you can actually hear it. The comet is literally just vibrating very, very slowly, about once every 20 to 25 seconds. That's it. This has absolutely nothing to do with radio signals posited in the first claim that I talked about in this episode about 20 minutes ago. It's tiny vibrations found by the plasma's instrument suite. Second, there is a conventional explanation. Occam's razor is a maxim that would tell you that the explanation that introduces the least amount of new information is likely to be correct. While the exact mechanism is unknown, the plasma team has an actual explanation that works. Therefore, we don't need to jump to what I might classify as fairly crazy ideas. Third, people may desire to return to the original sentiment that I mentioned in the very first claim of this episode, that this is a spaceship and it's sending out secret, secret, super-duper secret signals to the secret space people. Did I mention that they're secret? And that this is proof that all of that secret stuff was correct. The problem with this is why would they admit it now? You can't have stuff being super-duper secret and conspiratorial while it's being shouted out in press releases and composed into a sound file that, as of this writing, has been listened to over 5.6 million, with an M, times all around the world. Either this stuff is secret, or it isn't. That really about wraps up the topic. This was a big event. Rosetta had many firsts, and it also had a really good public outreach team. It took a lot of work, it took a lot of money, and it took a lot of time to do this, as most space missions do, and it is exploring a body that you can't get to and see from yourself or by yourself from your armchair. You have to trust what a pan-governmental agency, the European Space Agency, is putting out in terms of the data. That means it is rife for conspiracies, and yet those are the only ones that I've been able to find. That's also why I initially resisted doing this episode. I only decided to do this topic after I could find a few more conspiracies and thought that I could possibly use it to teach some real science or science process. In the future, I expect we'll continue to get weird conspiracy claims about practically every mission or every mission's encounter with new objects. I'm almost kind of dreading what sorts of conspiracies are going to be put out there when New Horizons gets to Pluto in next July. 
As for other segments this week, we have one piece of new news. So far, I've done two different episodes on uncertainties, errors, and other things with respect to science. Episode 94 was probably the more boring one, while episode 108 won numerous accolades, at least in my own head. That's my intro for this new news item dealing with the death of the Venus Express mission around, oddly enough, Venus. She's probably dead. But we weren't sure for the last several months, and whether it would survive another few months. The reason is it all gets down to uncertainties. The craft has been around Venus for practically a decade, lasting much longer than people ever expected. During that time, it has done numerous fuel burns. The mission operations folks know to a very high accuracy how much fuel each one used up. But there's a tiny uncertainty on each burn. A few months ago, the amount of remaining fuel, which is needed to keep the probe in orbit, was at zero, to within the uncertainty of the mission's operations folks. They were able to do another burn or two, because there were error bars, but just a few weeks ago, the craft was no longer responding to Earth, and so it likely plummeted to its doom. Then, mission operations folks were actually able to reestablish some contact and get some telemetry data, but the contact was sporadic. And so the conclusion is that the burns that were needed to actually keep it in orbit failed partway through, and that the craft is very well, now more quickly, lowering in its orbit or lowering in its altitude and getting closer and closer to the ground, going through more and more atmosphere, and will slowly break up, and we will lose contact altogether. But, because of those uncertainties, it could have lasted a few more months, or it could have died a few months ago. We simply didn't know. I always actually kind of find it neat when this stuff really plays out in the real world. With that said, I have somehow managed to get this final episode for the year out actually at over 30 minutes, because I think I just passed the 30-minute mark, depending on exactly how my encoder works, but I think I'm right now at the 30.09 mark. Um and I'm wasting your time. So, I will bid you adieu. Have a happy new year, um, happy winter solstice for those in the northern hemisphere, summer solstice for those in the southern hemisphere, and we'll see you next year. That wraps up this topic for the 122nd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email to the web address. Just replace that first period with an at sign, podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, or the Facebook page for the podcast, or even the tweeterness, the tweet at pseudoastro, P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, am always behind on responding to feedback, though attempting to catch up, and if you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. As I mentioned, this was a listener-requested episode. Please also write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, or, that would be iTunes plural, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell lots of people. 